This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Breaking Banks Europe, episode 101, news from the fintech front. I'm talking about all things fintech in October. And today's a really special episode because last episode, we had the 100th episode anniversary of Breaking Banks Europe. And on this episode, we have the second anniversary of Connie Dorstein and Liz Lumley joining us on Breaking Banks Europe. So another episode of anniversaries, and I would like to welcome our two phenomenal guests, Connie and Liz. Hello. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Delighted to be here. And and before we kick off, I just want to say, send very warm wishes. I'm sure Liz is joining me to Mattia, the great uh, Breaking Bank Europe. Get well uh, soon. Hero. Get well soon. Uh, All these women are thinking of you, so you must be jumping out of your bed in no time. (laughs) That's, That's definitely enough motivation for Matteo, for sure. Cool. So ladies, thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot of um, interesting things to talk about um, in today's episode. So let's kick off with um, the recent valuation from N26, uh, the challenger bank out of Germany. Um, So they are now valued at $9 billion. And personally, this boggles my mind because The product itself is nothing spectacular, and I've seen zero significant noteworthy updates in terms of product or customer experience with the app. They've also had some issues with um, going up against the Works Council in Germany. What's going on here, Liz? Is this a... um, Do you agree with this valuation or is this just really over the top? (laughs) I mean, it's hard. I mean, I've never been a customer of N26. Um, And it's when you you talk about valuations, it's kind of like talking about house prices. It's it's what people are willing to pay for, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever you're selling. But it, it is it is. I mean, I've always the whole Silicon Valley model of of disruptive technology and all the hype around that. Um, doesn't seem to translate a lot into the financial services world. And I think for, for, for good and, and bad reasons, you know, what N26 is doing in, in any challenger bank is, is they're just, they're putting out a financial service, whether they're, it's a bank or a payments company or you know, a travel card, whatever. This isn't revolutionary stuff. They're packaging up, packaging it up in maybe, maybe and this isn't anything connected to N26 and other people's views on this that have been customers, maybe better customer service, maybe a better UX. Um, it has that sort of flashy, the vernacular they're using, the language they're using is much more young and fresh, and people get caught up in the hype. It, it does take a, a sound and sober mind to look at what actually is their business model? You know, it, it, it is a bank in Germany. 
You know, what are they doing that's different from Commerce Bank and Deutsche Bank? And um, and and look at the valuations that way. I mean, it it's it's it it again. You know, if uh, if someone wants to value the company that much, well. Then that, good luck to them. Yeah, good luck to them, exactly. Yeah, well, I'll chip in my two cents, and I do agree with Liz on this one. I, I think it's important to sort of look at, at the market and see that Germany is a different market. Germany is still a totally non-consolidated market with lots and lots and lots of Landesbank and very many, it's, it's a bit like America, many, many mm. regional banks, community banks, banks with a special purpose, savings banks. Also, Germans tend to be very cautious with what they do with their money. They have very high saving uh, lengths and they, and they really need to trust the brand. Um, N26 came out of a bullish uh, and beautifully invigorated sort of Berlin style experience. I have to say, like Liz, I'm not a customer. I've tried to be. I made three attempts and I failed on the whole KYC uh, rang the call center, uh, got no response. Three weeks later, I got a note saying, sorry, you didn't choose us. Um, so I'm, I'm not overly impressed uh, either. And, and I agree with Liz. I mean, for a while I've been saying, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm totally in favor of a new financial world. But the, the so-called challenger banks have been literally mostly challenging their marketing budgets. Mm. Um and not much on the sort of real underneath, uh, under, under the hood sort of uh, experience. I think that we've got to be fair that, in, 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 you know, if you want to make real money in retail banking, you really have to have massive, massive following. Uh, otherwise, it's, this, it's just impossible I, with I the interest anyone, rates. I didn't know anyone was making money in retail. <laughs> well, exactly. So I'm trying to be positive, you know, if you yeah. have masses of customers. Mm. Um, but, you know, with, with the current interest rate, it's very hard. And I don't see N26 doing significant different things for a vastly underserved market in Europe, which is uh, the sole trader, uh, the, the gigs. Um, and, and all of that is heavily regulated as well in, in, in Germany. But that is a segment that really, really needs support. But of course, it's a slightly, it's a, it's a segment that you need to serve like a retail customer but with way more flexible uh, products that people literally with a slider can pull across. And do I want credit? Yes, but for how many days? Do I need it today? No, I don't. I slide it to zero. So, and those sort of products take some real skill sets of very, very agile technology. So, yeah, I, I find $9 billion a heck of a lot of money. And, uh, yeah, I find it very hard yeah, uh, to believe in that, I, I, I'd much rather go and look at the companies that, you know, do much more embedded finance and help others as well. Definitely, and I think, I mean, talking about the freelance market, I, there was a statistic that I think by 2027, half of the U.S. population was going to be a freelancer in one way. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's not yeah. like a dying segment. I mean, especially with you know, COVID and how everyone, this new kind of digital economy and, and ways of working. I think that even if, you know, people aren't full-time freelancers, people are still having some side freelancing activities. And yeah. as a freelancer myself, um, I've tried lots of different apps and platforms and it's just this trial and error, mixing and matching. There's still nothing really out there that kind of... I mean, I, I think, I think Megan, you're really touching on something which I know wasn't on the on the agenda, but there, 
I think all of the financial services industry and all of banking is is kind of struggling and limping to catch up with the way the way society is changing. Exactly. You know, they're, they're not that uh, PAYE, as you say in the UK, you know, a, a salaried full-time employee. People are having much different careers now, much different lifestyles. They might look work for a salary company for a few years and then go freelance and then go contract and start their business. And I think banks are really kind of struggling to keep up with those types of dy- dynamic changes in people's yeah. lives and offer them products that are fit for purpose. But that's a yeah, and, yeah. And, I mean, and in all fairness, and it's not to make a pun, but you know, the, the company I co-founded in Mark Hartley, uh, and Mark Hartley is now driving that to success at Bankify. We really set up to do just that because people talk very often. Challenger banks say, "Oh, we do things differently," but they go in the same silos as the mm-hmm. current banks. They say, "We need payments. We need this. We need that." And we looked at it differently, and we said, "You know." Um, gigs and sole traders and people who have sort of very agile working environments, they need to send invoices, but they primarily need to get paid. <laughs> and they need to sort of do, do their tax arrangements easily. They need to do their bookkeeping easily. And I think that is a very exciting journey that we're seeing is that, uh, you know, some challenger banks, some PSPs are going to offer this to their merchants, uh, but also some existing banks like the Corp in UK said, you know what, we're going to embed this white label in our product range so people can send a payment request and get paid by whatever payment people choose to make the payments with and receive it and cons- consolidate that in a bookkeeping. And I think that is the way we need to go. And too many challenger banks I see copying the models from, from banks, like we have payments, we have loans, we have... Mm-hmm. It's not in the verticals, it's in the horizontal value chain. Um, and that, that takes a very fresh approach. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think this is where, you know, in embedded finance, there's so many opportunities we're already starting to see. Like, you know, Deal and Gusto in the U.S., HR platforms offering wallets and um, payday kind of, you know, that service where you can get paid a few days earlier and savings accounts and everything. So it's going to be an interesting space. Um, Yeah. And and go where the customer is already. So if I would be a VC, I would watch that very uh, vigorously. Because if you go where the customer is already, you can spend a lot less on marketing. Uh, because those brands need to spend humongous budgets on just attracting and converting customers from one bank to the next. And then once they've onboarded, make sure that they're actually going to use it and that you get volume. And, and those are two challenges that are not, you know, I'm a marketer myself, and I know that those are painfully uh, difficult challenges that require in the retail space, a lot of money. And that is the trick, you know, the people who have a sort of agile working space. There was was a a statistic, I think it was Goldman Sachs spent $80 million just on marketing for Marcus. Yeah. (laughs) Well, imagine how much tech you can build with that. I mean, give give me 10% and we'll build out a whole new product range. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you see that uh, if the money, you look basically at, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> We're not getting fresh when you know the old banks are struggling, the new banks aren't aren't giving us any fresh ideas. Basically, you know, give us the yeah. money and we'll come up with new products. And we'll come up with the new ideas, exactly. But you you do see that um there is um a slight you see that there is a better understanding, let me put it this way, in the VC community. 
um, to also look at uh, sort of embedded finance models where basically you're, you're, you're B2B to C or B2B to whatever. Um, but some are still hunting unicorns, as we know. I think that that's a nice kind of um, transition to the next story, which is all about um, Klarna and their new look in the UK. So, I mean, a few kind of, I don't know, humorous things about this whole pivot that Klarna is doing in the UK. So they're offering now the buy now option at the checkout for the UK, which is kind of, I don't know, this like positioning it as this new option, which is basically just, you know, how people are used to paying with a debit card. But also, I don't know if you, if you ladies have seen this, but there was this viral tweet, um, Klarna, they had a notification about buying costumes that are like squid game for Halloween. So a company, you know, that's, Mm, I don't want to say facilitating people getting into debt, but they, mm, we can talk about it, but you know, so <laughs> them having that promotion about buying clothes, about a game that's about people. Can I, can I, can I debt. defend, I'm, I'm going to defend Klarna and buy now pay letter just a little bit mm-hmm. because, you know, they did not invent debt or credit. Mm-hmm. Um, no. You know, I mean, I, I, in the 1970s, I remember sitting in a, in a very hot coat with, with my, uh, with my mother in line at Sears for the Christmas layaway. You know, this idea of buy now, pay later is, it was not invented by Klarna. Um, and, you know, th- this is a credit, this is a debt. Um, you know, maybe you can argue the nuances that they need to make that clearer for people. I mean, I think all of us, have had it made a stupid mistake a long time ago with a credit card and learned that lesson and never did it again. Um, especially in the U.S., you know, I mean, credit cards often uh, offer a, a certain amount of um, security with payments. So I know a lot of people in the U.S. that use credit cards for their everyday, for their everyday life, their everyday spending, and then pay off the balance every month. Um, you know, there is, if you look at a, a not even, you know, if you look at a, a, an expensive product like Peloton, for example, I think a firm became a unicorn because they, you basically buy a Peloton exercise bike on these installments. Yeah. Um, you know, I first came to the UK and everyone said, don't buy a television, rent a TV and you pay it off in installments. You know, th- this is not a new concept that has been introduced to an unsuspecting millennial hordes getting everyone into debt. Um, I, d- I do think I'm going to be a little harsh. Maybe people need to take a little bit more responsibility for what they can afford. Yeah, well, and okay. And I'm going to take the other side of the coin here, Liz, oh, because you and I, no, no, no. We, 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 I think at the heart of the matter, we always agree, but I think that this is about how to get there. I think for the UK, you're true. For the US, you're true. I remember moving into the UK from the Netherlands and having a, a marketing team, which was primarily young women. And then there was suddenly it was every Friday, you know, once a month, you know, everybody was depressed and tears and whatever. And I was like, is it the sort of the one day in the month thing or what is happening here? And somebody told me, no, the credit card statements have come out. And I was like, yes, and because at that time we didn't have credit cards in Holland. We had credit card companies who were giving you debit cards that were paid off by an automatic uh, debit at the end of the month. And there was no credit facility at all. And that's what I started to realize, that people were buying beyond their means. And to me, as a Dutch woman, that was unimaginable. You only did that for a house or something massively important. Uh, Anyway, 
fast forward, I do think that if you look at this culturally, um, I totally agree with Liz. It's not new. They're offering a facility. Uh, yes, I'm a liberal. People should take care of their own life and their own responsibilities, but not everybody does that really well. And my problem with all of this is that we are slightly hypocritical in the fintech space because we, on the one hand, we hip and hop up and down about women in, 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 in tech and ESG. We're greenwashing ourselves to hell. And we mm. don't talk about the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is that we are, as a global economy, carrying unbearable credit around on our necks. Well, you know, okay, we can't help. Maybe we cannot influence that. But what we can do as an industry is sort of not talk about all of these topics, but the minute one of these products starts to become a unicorn, put all of those sorts aside and just jubilee, jubilee, because it is worth a lot of money. Because what you're doing then is doing exactly what we did in the 80s. Everything was allowed as long as it made a lot of money. Mm. I agree with you. It's not all about bad stuff, Klarna, but I do think that payday loans, um, borrowing on your payroll, uh, buy now, pay later, should really come, you know, with a hell of a lot more balanced opinions but, but Connie, and comments. Yeah, in terms of like payday loans and, um, you know, don't you think one one of the things that makes me frustrated about the anger around payday loans and payday lenders and the old old wanga is that a lot of people you know our our group uh, we don't know what it's like to sit there and wonder do I pay the heating bill or do I buy groceries for food right not anymore I, there are, there are, right? I know but there are lots of people that are making those decisions I know. every day right so the the fact that these products got a foothold is showing us that there is a problem out there there's a an audience that is not being addressed and because the smart people in our world are not making products that will treat these people fairly and with respect they're being then preyed upon by people yeah. who don't care. So it's all wonderful to sit there and talk about how horrible payday loans are without offering a solution. But there are people with real problems. In this you're world. absolutely you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, in, if we could bring that into sort of a different light, we should. I, I agree with you. And at least the people with payday loans have a payday. You know, that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. And I am totally not un, not unsympathetic towards those problems. I've, I've been there myself when I was a student. But mm -hmm. I, do, I, I do think that the model of buy now, pay later gets you on an impulse uh, buying decision. And, and it's, it's mm -hmm. often, if you look at what people spend it on, it is not, you don't use that for you know, the heating bill. But anyway, let's not talk about it too long. I just think that, the, no, 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 but I do think yeah. that the, the debate should be more balanced and we should want to, if we talk ESG, whatever, just don't just say, oh, we're hitting the climate accord uh, ticks in the boxes. Then yeah. make sure it becomes part of your purpose mm -hmm. as a bank, as a tech company. And I'm sure if uh, the Klarna and the payday loan people listen to this, they will think about it and say, you know, we can probably do something with that and make it more insightful for people like, do you realize that then over the next summit, you're going to pay this, 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 and this. 
Just one point on, on Klarna and ESG, actually, before we go to the break. Um, I was looking, kind of auditing the whole Klarna experience uh, a few months ago, and they actually have this feature where you can, it's like PFM, except um, for your carbon footprint. So you can go through all of your past um, purchases. That purchases. Made with Klarna, yeah, and you're able to see... Um, you know, what the carbon impact was, and then it offers you the option to then donate to different charities that are looking to do things in the sustainable kind of ESG space. So they are doing- Well, there you are. They are I, I'm, I'm, they're smart people. Of course, they're aware of this debate. They're not, they're not stupid. They will be aware and they will be working on this. Okay, so on that note, we're going to go to a quick break and then we will be back discussing a few more stories um, sticking in the Challenger Bank space and also touching upon um, crypto. Do you want to be part of Breaking Banks Europe? Reach out and learn more about the opportunity to be featured in one of our shows. With over 1.6 million listeners and counting, Breaking Banks Europe is bound to become the place to advance critical dialogue in Europe and the UK fintech scene. Reach out on Instagram or Twitter at Breaking Banks EU or go to www.provoke.fm. Welcome back to part two of Breaking Banks Europe, uh, episode number 101, News from the Fintech Front. Uh, I am joined by my two awesome guests, Connie and Liz, and we're going to kick off the second part of the podcast talking about the Finch Report, um, specifically around funding and uh, what's happening in, in the European space. So Connie, can you share with the listeners a bit more about what's happened with this report, what it's yeah. yeah, I'd be delighted. And by the way, Finch is a Dutch company, so I'm, I'm really talking about my countrymen. And they, they put this, uh, this, this excellent report together on a, on a, on a regular basis. Um, and, uh, you know, what we see is that we've had, um, we've had a, a, a Q2 in 21 was the biggest ever leading um, funding quarter on record uh, on, on a global basis. Obviously, uh, Europe is always a little bit uh, behind on, on the rest of the world. But in Europe as well, we saw, and that is quite new, is that we saw that a lot of the uh, funding went in particular to very large um, European companies that um, were getting some money. Um, we saw that, um, we also saw that although we had the, sort of the, the COVID six month lockdown, um, the, 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 the tech industry in Europe has been really quite uh, resilient and um, uh, has also had a, a lot of government support, uh, massive government support, actually. Um, we saw a little less M&A activity, is simply, I think, because a lot of people were sort of hiding and seeking out and waiting for things things to, uh, to happen um, over the next sort of um, months to see how the whole COVID thing uh, pans out. But if you look slightly beyond the Finch report and what is happening on a global scale, you saw that in particular, extremely large rounds were driving uh, the scene in, in the beginning of this year. Uh, we see that South America, which is really interesting, um, is really hotting up and there's a lot of activity, but people are really 
leapfrogging uh, sort of the incumbent space. Um, and we saw quite a few uh, public exits that were um, that reached new highs. I think in Europe, what we see is that it's uh, not an easy market at the moment, although there's an incredible amount of money um, for the early stage deals. It is not um, an easy space um, for companies to, to get money simply because everybody is, because of the unrest in the market, a little bit more critical of what is happening in the space. We see that payments uh, is still sort of a place where people love to go because they can compare to a bunch of unicorns. And this actually always amazes me. Why always people want to look for compare stuff and don't look at something that's truly they unique. Because they, they don't have imagination. They don't have imagination. Yeah. And they want to compare it to something yeah. to sort of get to a starting valuation. But exactly. I think that there are some companies that are truly doing different things. And I'm sure you're going to react to that, Liz. I mean, um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I see, you know, in terms of people always go for payments, I think it's because it's something most normal people understand. And then people who don't understand this industry start to realize how incredibly complicated payments are. But anyway, but you know, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this sort of funding boom. And, yeah. you know, I know um, I, I was talking to a few VCs earlier this year and they made an interesting comment for a very long time. There's been kind of a, a, a lamenting in Europe that. Uh, we don't see the valuations that that you see in in Silicon Valley, for example. Of course, there are some mm-hmm. of us who think there. Yeah, I agree. There are some of us who think you know maybe we have a more realistic valuation culture. Than I think so. <laughs> but saying that, um, I was talking. There used to be this kind of idea that you could not invest in a company unless you actually sat at a table with the founders in front of them to do the deal. Now, of course, as you know. We have been in a global pandemic for uh, 18 months, yeah. two years, where everything is, is done on, on Zoom and, and online. And so I've, I've t- some of the investors I spoke to said what's interesting is deals still happened. You know, deal funding rounds still happen over Zoom. And it kind of broke down a lot of these regional barriers for yeah. where funding cultures exist. And that might factor in a little bit of this sort of boom in funding we're seeing over here that someone who you know runs a VC firm in California doesn't have to get on that plane to go see this cool startup in in Italy or or Germany or 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 the or the Nordics or South America they can they can do this all online um so that that might be a a, a part of it so we'll either um you know we we might see more huge booming valuations coming as the sort of regional barriers break down or we'll just go back to uh, sitting on the border. Yeah. And I think there's one other aspect. Uh, When we talk fintech and whatever, uh, and and VCs, we very often quickly, our mind jumps to challenger banks and payments. Mm -hmm. Um, We do see that particularly in insure tech, there's a massive amount of uh, activity. Robotic process automation, RPA, is literally you know, uh, something that is happening and happening on a massive scale, insurers sit on even more data mm-hmm. um, than banks. Uh, we see a lot of activity. I see a lot of activity in the VCs as well in the whole, you know, life and non-life scene se- yeah. uh, around but insurance. You're, you're going into the world. Yeah, you're talking right. about our world here, right? And um, and which which I, I think is is completely valid. But you need to be an investor that understands that that uh, you know, r- robot process automation is something that banks will want, or that you know, like a, a regulatory reporting automation. Yeah. 
Like you got to understand that that's something banks will buy. And yeah. in terms of the, and that's why that sort of that consumer unicorn yeah. is 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 a different product altogether. It's a different product altogether. And I, I, you know, if I could predict and if I look at where I sort of would like to invest and where I look at, it's really we're going more into, uh, let's say, uh, tougher tech, complicated tech. Mm. And I think another brand new segment which uh, excites me enormously is deep tech. So all mm. of the stuff that facilitates better coding, better quality codes. Um, but to do that, uh, to, to, in, in related to funding, And that's broader though, than fintech. Yeah, to do, in related to funding, you need investors that understand yeah. that that's a big deal. I mean, I, I've sat in meetings with investors, you know, that, that don't understand, you know, the insurance regulations. They, yeah. they don't understand why that's why that would be a big deal. Why, why some company offering you know, efficiencies for report, like if you don't understand that industry, then you're not going to invest in it. No, so, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound sexy, but, um, but it's very yeah. sexy. <laughs> it is very sexy. <laughs> and that comes from a woman who's been in payments for 25 years. <laughs> well, you can make it sexy. No, 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 but seriously, um, the, there is so much value to be gained, but I totally agree with Liz. Also in VC spaces, we would need more analysts who've had more than an MBA background, but also mm. have, a, you know, a deep understanding, appreciation of sector oh, and tech. Again, no, I agree. I, there was, again, I, I wish I could pull up the, the, the statistic. I think it's like 85% of, of VCs come from an investment background and only about 5% of them either came from a tech background or were founders. Like, yeah. so the, these are people investing in startups that have, one, no experience of the tech and no experience of starting their own company. The, yeah. these, these are, these are MBAs with investment backgrounds. And they should- To their credit, <laughs> many of them, yeah, to their credit, many of them now have very good advisory boards um, where they pull in, you know, best people from the industry to, uh, and they listen to them very carefully. Obviously, if it leads to a great new investment, then- um, mm. The, the glamour goes to the company, but in, in the end, you know, they put the money on the table. So we, uh, it's got to be a warm collaboration. Yeah. But anyway, so Europe is looking a little bit. Um, at, and then the, the one thing that really ignited my interest was that Finch was quite down on anything crypto and blockchain. Uh, again, probably because, you know, from a European perspective, we always, you know, we're not innovators. Uh, mainland Europeans, we're great at efficiency. We're not very good at innovation or anything new. Um, so we would not be the first to embrace anything like that. But I cannot, I cannot look my son in the eyes who's 26 and say to him, you know, the system we built in the 80s. Um, is the best economic and fair system in the world and with banking, mm. and this is the way it's going to go. I think we're going to, you know, inevitably and luckily be exposed to a level of uh, uh, disintermediation and decentralized finance, and we're going to need the blockchain for that. And with good deep tech, blockchain will become as efficient as other technologies. Can we can we stick with this uh, crypto blockchain um, topic and, and move on to a story that's um, coming from the the U.S. and uh, Coinbase in particular? Um, so they're kind of 
shouting about the need for a uh, a crypto specific regulator. So there was a tweet um, in September from the CEO of Coinbase who was frustrated because they wanted to launch a, a new product around, I think it was um, Coinbase Lend. They tried to engage with the regulator, do the right thing. Then at the end, the regulator pulled the plug. So they're obviously very frustrated. And I think, you know, this is also, you know, we were talking about to what extent investors actually have the tech um, and the founder experience, to what extent do the, you know, standard regulators actually truly understand blockchain technology or cryptocurrency? So do we need crypto-specific regulators? <laughs> why yeah, not? Who wants? <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, there, there, there's a separate payments regulator in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I get their point that, you need people in the re- regulatory uh, body that really understand what's going on with, with with crypto and 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 that industry. And I mean, con- considering they're calling out to be regulated, um, you know, for someone that understands their business, I, I don't I don't see why that would be a major a major problem. I think there is something to that that there should be. I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to be slightly philosophical on this point because I think. Um, the whole idea is we want to create something new that works fairer and better for all of us. And then to sort of try to stamp old business models like regulation, like somebody else tells you what you can and can't do on it. I would like to take a bit more time to sort of think about that uh, um, more philosophically. I, I do agree that the current systems do not serve the crypto community at all. But I have a different question. And Liz, I'd love to hear your view on this. Mm-hmm. If you look at the world today, we have actually regulated two things. We have got the central banks and everything sort of for the stability of the system. Mm-hmm. And that is incredibly important that we have stability in the system, that if banks go bust, somebody speaks for all the poor people who put their mortgage or their pension in those banks. And I think that is a very uh, important societal role for, you know, um, a, a properly run world. But then the other thing we did was the minute technology and everything came on board, we started to also regulate the infrastructure and we started to dictate either by implementing standards or by basically dictating it, this is how you have to work the system. And so we got PSD2s and we got uh, EBAs in Europe overlooking stuff. And I think that that is what we should not do with crypto because the whole idea of decentralized finance is that somebody central looks at the stability, at the volume, at the pricing of the currency, but that the market which it always runs way ahead of whatever regulator can dream of, um, sort of takes care of the infrastructure and the technology and that we do not tie each other down to rules on, on what to do or not. I think we should take almost like we should protect ourselves better by having a more, you know, financial system regulation view about the stability for the people of the assets rather than try to, regulate the assets or the infrastructure. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree, Connie. I think, yeah, I mean, this, there's so many, I think the industry is, is moving so fast. And as we've, you know, we've only touched upon a few things in the past. Yeah. 
sure, but there's just so much to consider. Well, and exactly. And I remember, I remember, you know, traveling to South Africa to look at the first internet banks and there wasn't a browser. And I went home and I was uber excited because I had a CD-ROM with a browser on it and I could go onto the World <laughs> Wide Web. You're showing myself. our age, Connie. Showing- uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, only on a podcast, never on a webcast. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, we're at that stage with anything blockchain and crypto. You know, we have no mm-hmm. idea yet of the massive opportunities. So to sort of try to smother the baby in the in 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 the in, in the co- in the cod is a, for mm-hmm. me it's it's a very tough one. I think we should be a bit bolder. And we saw all the great things that internet brought us as well. And you know, it took us a hell of a lot more time to to regulate anything like that. So I think. We should give our spirits a little bit more freedom uh, and just do very good communication about the risks. Yeah, I think uh, definitely a good note to end the podcast on. Um, But there was one other point I wanted to talk about, another story, which I think kind of ties together a lot of things that we talked about, specifically with the the high valuations hyped, uh, potentially, I think we're kind of all in agreement that they may be a little bit overhyped, um, of challenger banks and this need for, you know, what will the investment space look like in, in fintechs and how do we invest in, you know, um, what, what did you call it? Tough tech? And, you know, the need for people with more founding and, and tech experience to kind of take the role of uh, investors. And I mean, what we're starting to see is, you know, the founders of TransferWise, Monzo, and now Revolut um, looking to potentially give back to the fintech. Um, but you see, but you see, that is, I know, I know that the news this week was about the family office from Nick from Revolut, but yeah. um, you know that that's a bit, that has a long history of uh, founders, you know, exiting, yeah. having a big lot of cash, and then investing back into into tech industries, right? But you know what that ends up doing from a structural point of view is you have billionaire white guys investing in soon to be billionaire white guys investing in soon to be billionaire white guys, and it becomes this vicious circle of of the same type of person getting funding receiving funding i mean we we, we saw we saw stats out stats it's like out. university threats yeah it, exactly you know i mean there was there was a, a friend of a mutual friend of ours megan who said that she was speaking to to an investor and he said well we only we only invest in early stage companies where the founder sees himself in them yeah. And I, you know, it's like, what, you know, what people that can pee out of their reproductive organs? Like, what are you seeing? Like, who are these people? What are you seeing in them? And it's, they're investing. So I'm just hoping one more women, more black people, more women of color, more, you know, more people yeah. outside of white guys get to become billionaires and invest into start investing into people that, you know, look like us because I'm tired. I'm tired of, of, you know, I just, I'm tired. <laughs> I want the world to change. And I, but, ne- but never tired enough to speak it. up. <laughs> never, never tired enough to speak out. And that's why we love you, Liz. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, all the stories we hear, it's, it's not easy for sure. And I think that that's a super fair point. Um, and I mean, I, 
I hope that we're we're proven wrong sooner rather than later, and um, the cycle is is broken. But let's see, let's see, let's see. Well, okay. just 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 never ever ever give up. And with that, I pay I applaud you know the man who's not very woke but was very wise, not woke but wise, Mr. Churchill. Never ever 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 give up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, well then let's end on that note for real this time. So yeah, thank you to Connie and Liz for sharing their phenomenal insights and perspectives on what's been happening in the world of fintech and cryptocurrency over the past month. And thank you to our listeners. So that wraps up um, episode 101, News from the Fintech Front. Thank you again, Connie and Liz. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.